Psalm chapter 6. It says, Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. Have mercy on me, Lord, for I am faint. Heal me, Lord, for my bones are in agony. My soul is in deep anguish. How long, Lord? How long? Turn, Lord, and deliver me. Save me because of your unfailing love. Among the dead, no one proclaims your name. Who praises you from the grave? I am worn out from my groaning. All night long, I flood my bed with weeping and drench my couch with tears. My eyes grow weak with sorrow. They fail because of all my foes. Away from me, all you who do evil. For the Lord has heard my weeping. The Lord has heard my cry for mercy. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies will be overwhelmed with shame and anguish. They will turn back and suddenly be put to shame. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning to you. I, uh, my name is Scott. I have the privilege of serving here as the lead pastor. And uh, just a word about this particular specific day. Uh, I grew up in my elementary years in Nebraska, the great frozen north, anyone? And then spent a good portion of my adult life in another part of the great frozen north. And when I was a kid, I walked to school uphill both ways in the snow in flip-flops. So I am never canceling church. So uh, for those of you who are in the room, you don't get extra points. Um, but if you are joining us online, we are thrilled that we had that option, and we are thrilled that you are joining us online today. Uh, but it is a cold day here, and I promise you, I promise you, it will get better. Uh, today, here's what I'd like to do. We were going to start a series today and, and uh, explain why we're not going to do what we're going to do today in a second. And I, I realized, you know what, we need to pause where we were going to go. We're going to talk about a playbook for you making a difference with your life in 2024. We're going to talk about some forgotten doctrines that have changed the world, and we're going to re-embrace them together. But I realized that many of us, many of us in our local church family, are going through a lot of difficulty and are very frankly suffering. And I just, I thought, you know, talked to a few people, prayed about it, and I really just feel like I needed to pause, and I need to, I need to do my best to pastor you in this particular moment. Um, so I, I, here's my question that we're going to talk about this today. When you suffer, not if you suffer, when, when you suffer, how do you handle it? How do you, how do you find, how do you hang on to and how do you live with hope? When, when you suffer. So I want to talk to you about what's on the other side of suffering. Here's been my experience. Is we suffer, again, when. When we suffer. And we look at what we had before when the suffering didn't exist. And we look at what we hope is in the future for us, hope. And it depends on which side... It depends which direction we're looking at our suffering from, because if you step over to where you've been when you weren't suffering and you look at your present condition, all you can feel is the loss. 
If, though, you can find a way to step over to the hope and look back on your suffering, I've discovered that it gives you a new way to see it. And I, I want to offer you a different way to see it. I want to be sensitive to what you're going through. And I want to give you some filters to apply to what you are currently going through. Now, listen, these are less Instagram filters. Um, for those of you who are on Instagram or on, on the TikToks, or, uh, you know, you're, and you post a picture and you can add a filter and the purpose of that filter is to make it look better. I'm not talking about that kind of filter. I'm talking more like 3D glasses. If you've been to a 3D movie and you walk in, maybe you've had this experience, you go in and you don't have the 3D glasses on and everything's a little bit weird on the screen and then all of a sudden you put the 3D glasses on and it's like this whole new world. You're like, I didn't know popcorn could reach out and touch me like that. Are you, are you following what I'm saying? What the 3D glasses do is they help you to see what's not visible to the eye. That's the kind of filter that I want to give you. So I want to give you three filters. You ready for these? Okay, that's what we're going to talk about this morning. One, the necessity of lament. The necessity of lament. Two, the hopeful person. And then number three, final and proximate hope. Final and proximate hope. I'll explain what I mean by that. Let's talk about the necessity of lament. Now listen, when you suffer, I, I really think that it's very, very important for you and I to be able to name what it is that is happening. Here's where I learned this. Um, I learned this from that uh, Saturday morning theology cartoon, uh, G.I. Joe. Anyone else? Uh, for those of you of a certain age, I know our teens are at uh, winter retreat, so they don't know this, and my children don't know this. There was a day when the only time you could watch cartoons, we had to get up at six o'clock on Saturday morning and the cartoons would come on, and my favorite cartoon was G.I. Joe, and G.I. Joe would always, you'd have, go, Joe, and then there would be this little line he would say, knowing is half the battle, right? That's actually pretty decent theology. Knowing is half the battle. If you can name what's happening, it helps you to get your arms around it. Now, I've discovered that most people, many people, have what, around pain and suffering, they have what I would call trash bag theology. What is trash bag theology? Trash bag theology is the idea that I can take my pain, I can shove it in a sack, I can take more pain, shove that into the sack, and then I can take that and I can throw it away. I can just open the door of the garage and I can throw it away. And when I throw it away, in the act of doing that, it actually goes away. And the reason we struggle with that, you know, right? If you did that with your trash at some point, what is inside the garage will come into the house. Are you following me? And, and here's the reason we do that is we think that some of our emotions are off limits. Now, I, I, let me say this, I, just some expression of motion, we may need to figure out how to limit or change or do in a non-destructive way, but emotion is not off limit. Listen to me. Your emotion that you're feeling right now, whatever it is, even if you would classify it as a negative emotion, is not off limit because the human person does not work like that. We don't work like where we just throw things away. Your emotion, what you feel, is part of you being made in God's image. And if you take away your emotion, what you do is you take away a part of your humanity. Now, the, the second component that happens when we have trash bag theology is that what it causes us to misunderstand our experience. And here's what we think. We think, okay, well, if, you know, if I'm a Christian, then I get Jesus and then everything gets settled in my life, or at least it ought to be. 
And so then as a result, I, then I, like, I don't struggle anymore, or maybe I should not struggle anymore. And, and a story I would point you to is in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 14. There's a storm on the Sea of Galilee, and uh, the disciples are terrified, you know, the suffering in their life, difficulty. And Jesus comes and walks on the water to Peter and calls to, calls to Peter. And now this is what we think when we read that story. We go, okay, so there's, there's the storm, and Jesus is walking on the water. He's above the difficulty, and that is where I am to operate. I'm supposed to be always above the difficulty. Now, if you know the story, for just a second, Peter gets out of the boat, and then when he looks around and when he sees the wind and the waves, if you know the story, what happens to him? Peter sank. Lament is for when you are sinking. Listen, in that story, when you ever read any story about Jesus, you and I are always the other person, we're never Jesus. Are you following me? (laughs) Lament is for when you are sinking. Now, that actually highlights, that story highlights two very, very important realities that it's very important, especially when you're suffering, that you need to know about the Bible. Number one is that the Bible is actually incredibly honest and realistic about the human experience. Some people read the Bible and they say, well, you know, the the Bible is like fairy stories about being nice, or maybe uh, the Bible is a set of moral tales about how to be a better person. And I just would tell you, if that's your framework for understanding the scriptures, you either have not read the Bible, or if you have read the Bible, you have not understood it, because it's actually searingly honest about what life is actually like. I'll give you some examples. Uh, you could go in the Old Testament to the book of Job. The book of Job is the story of this man who has everything and he loses it all. And if you read the story, it's a, it's a, it's a powerful dissertation, if you want to call it that, on the role of suffering in hum, the human life. And there is not really any resolution about the suffering. It doesn't go away. Doesn't, Job doesn't go, well, you know, everything. I, I found God in my life and all my suffering went away. It doesn't end that way. It ends in a very, very difficult, in a difficult way. He has some resolution to it, but it, the book leaves the suffering kind of dangling. There's a whole book in the Old Testament called Lamentations, a book of laments. Uh, the book of Ecclesiastes is about all these different efforts to try and make sense of life, and, and they don't really work that well. You could go to the characters of the Bible, and you would find that they had suffering in their life. Some of it was things they brought into the world. Some happened to them. So you have a reference to God as the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. It's a repeated refrain about God. And if you know the stories of those men, Abraham uh, impregnated his servant and put dysfunction into his family line and sent suffering like waves down into his family line. Uh, Isaac was almost killed by his father. Jacob stole his brother's inheritance and caused an ethnic split that we're still wrestling with today. Here, Jesus, like, listen, don't, don't miss this. Jesus, Jesus, who walked on the water, said in John 16, in this world, you might have trouble. No, that's not what Jesus said. In this world, you what? Will have trouble. So, no fairy tales in the Bible, no false promises, searing honesty about the suffering that exists in the world, and actually vast narrative energy expended to reveal it. Now, the second reality about the Bible you need to know about is that actually in the Bible are tremendous resources for dealing with pain and grief and suffering. It's very honestly, it's one of the reasons that I continue as a a Christian is because of the depth and the breadth of resources 
for dealing with pain. And there's actually a spiritual, a specific biblical category for the human experience of grief and pain. And it is the word I gave you. It's the necessity of it. It's the word lament. Lament. Those books I referenced, Job, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, many of the prophetic books in the Old Testament were written as laments. A third of the Psalms, 150 psalm, divisions of the Psalms, Psalms are the prayer book of God's people. A full third of the Psalms are Psalms of lament and sorrow. What are, what are the Psalms? Psalms are poems, and what are poems? Uh, poems are emotions put into words, and this is the prayer book. In other words, this is what the Psalms are teaching you and me, if you pay attention. The, the prayers of the, of the book of Psalms are for your emotions. So in other words, a third of the time the Psalms would say, you and I are struggling. Now, vibe check of the human experience, that checks out, right? I asked my kids if I was using vibe check correctly before I said that, by the way. Here's what, here's what lament does. And so it's, it's a necessity, not the importance of lament, the necessity. Lament gives you permission to be in your current moment. It gives you a tool to move through the grief. I, we did a series a couple years ago, and I almost just preached an entire message again because you wouldn't remember. It was during that thing called COVID. Um, but I, I told you that it was a series on grief, and, and here's, here's what I told you about grief. I said, when loss is the experience, grief is the emotion. When loss is the experience, grief is the emotion. What's a lament? A lament is actually a passionate, dictionary definition, a passionate expression of grief or sorrow. So, are you grieving this morning? Now, I'll give you a couple of lenses to check. I'm going to give you, the first lens, this is sound a little bit odd, but I'm going to give you the lens of math. Uh, meaning loss comes through subtraction or addition, and it's math because it's things you can count. So you've had subtraction, maybe you've had subtraction hap- happen in your life. In other words, what was now isn't. So a death, a job, an income, a physical ability, an opportunity, an experience. What was now isn't. Or you may have had addition happen in your life. So what wasn't, now is. So disease or unwanted conflict or more responsibility or anxiety or loneliness. Are you grieving this morning? Have you lost something? Has something been added that you think, I wish this had never been added to me? Second lens to check your grief this morning is actually... A lens, it's a biblical lens, it's the, I call it the lens of exile. The lens of exile. What's, what's exile? Well, it's actually a, a thing that happened to the people of God. In, you can read about it in the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. The people of God, the Israelites, were, were defeated by the Babylonian Empire, the superpower of the day, and they were the, the leaders, the, the brightest, the best, were carted off to Babylon. And there, they lost everything. Now, there, there are two key events that are recorded in the Old Testament, two marking moments. Number one was the exodus when they were slaves in Egypt, and God freed them. Wow, what a, that's what we want in life, right? Like, I'm, I'm, I'm stuck, God. I need freedom, and we're free. 
the, the second one we don't like at all. It's, it's exile. It's like, well, I was free, and then I was taken into captivity. I don't like that, God. I don't want that in my life. Now, there was, there was a covenant that God made with his people. You read Genesis chapter 15. He made with Abram. And there were basically four, I'll call them pillars of this covenant. The four pillars were, uh, this is an irrevocable covenant. God said, I'm going to be with you. You'll be my people. I'm going to be your God. It was a forever covenant. And not only that, the, the God said, I'm going to give you land. God owns the land. And, and the promise was, the third pillar was that God was with us and he would be our God. And the fourth was that God's residence is now in Jerusalem. So let me, let me translate that for you, okay? In other words, this was the self and mental and emotional and spiritual and theological understanding of the people of Israel before they went into exile. In other words, they, 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 they thought about the world and they went, okay, God is with us. God is for us. God gave us all that we have. God promised he would never leave us. We know where God is. And in 586 B.C., in a moment of time, all of that was gone. That's why exile is actually a lens for grief, because they were now foreigners in a strange country taken there against their will. I think that's a brilliant definition from the scriptures of grief. I'm a foreigner in a strange country taken there against my will. That's a name for what you're experiencing. You, you, it's been... You've been cast out, in a sense, and your pillars, if you want to call it that, have been taken away. They've been knocked out, and you have immediate and sustained loss, and exile is loss of who you are and what you know. That points to the necessity of lament, like not an importance. You need a resource to deal with that kind of grief. That's why the Psalms were written out of lament. In fact, much of the Old Testament are that you read and you go, those are some of the most beautiful words I know, were written out of exile. And, and the Psalms are the prayer book of God's people. And listen, I'm, I'm trying to give you some permission today, okay, as your pastor, that it is those lament Psalms, those Psalms of difficulty and struggle, those are resources for you put into the Scriptures by God to help you with your grief. Those are prayers that are okay for you to pray. Now listen, I don't know what you think about prayer. I don't, this is not a message about prayer per se, but oftentimes when we come to prayer, we think that we have to have it all together when we pray. I know we don't use this language anymore, and it's actually beautiful, and I've heard people use this kind of language before, and it's actually very beautiful about prayer, but you know, you, you think in your mind that what God's looking for is like, oh, eternal Father, we thank thee that thou art beneficent and magnificent. And those are beautiful words. They're true, but they're not honest. And, and prayer isn't just true, it's also honest. Prayer is honest speech before God. The Psalms are true and honest. I mean, did you pick up the emotion in Psalm 6 as, as uh, it was being read this morning? Did you, did you pick it up? Like, I'm, I'm going to highlight some of the words. Anger, your wrath, I am faint, I am in agony, there is deep anguish. How long? Deliver me, save me, I'm among the dead, I'm worn out. My bed has been flooded with weeping and my couch with tears. My eyes grow weak with sorrow. Like I, 
vibe check, that checks out, right? Why is that there? Why? It's a, it, the, the purpose that it serves, again, the necessity of lament. It's a structure for your, the crisis of the hurt and the despair and the grief you're going through. And it's a way for you to express trust in God in the face of the seeming absence of God. It's the necessity of lament. Second thing is the hopeful person, the hopeful person. Um, you know this, uh, we live by our hopes. We live by what? We use that language all the time. I hope this happens, and then I'm, this is going to happen. I hope this happens. And then I hope he asks me to marry him, and, and then I hope it works. We, we live by our hopes. When you, I'm a reader, and when you read books, uh, lists of books of the most influential books in the last, say, 100 years, a book that almost always rises to the top is a book by the name uh, of The Man's Search for Meaning. Man's Search for Meaning. It's written by a guy by the name of Viktor Frankl. Viktor Frankl was taken to one of the Nazi camps and lived there in one of the Nazi camps in Nazi Germany. And um, he survived, obviously, and then wrote a book about man's search for meaning out of what he experienced in those camps. And he said something really poignant. It's a powerful, powerful book. It's not very long. It's very powerful. This is what he said. He's reflecting on all these prisoners. I'm going to put it on the screen for you. I think we have it. The prisoner who had lost his faith in the future, his future was doomed. With his loss of belief in the future, he also lost his spiritual hold. He let himself decline and become subject to mental and physical decay. Listen to what he says. Human beings are driven by their views of their own future. Maybe when I said that phrase, the hopeful person, you might be thinking I'm saying something to you like, hey, you need now, in light of the fact that you have a resource for lament, you need to be the hopeful person in your life. And you, you would be wrong. I am not talking about you. If you read uh, the lament psalms, again, there's a third of them are lament psalms, and you don't know about Jesus, what, how, how do you read the psalm. What are you left with if you don't know about Jesus? Now, before I answer that, let me just, let me make sure. I know, like, oh, this is a church. We know about Jesus. Hang on. Two thoughts about Jesus. You already saw what he said. He said, in this world, you will have trouble. In other words, sickness and sin and suffering. And in Jesus' life, Jesus experiences the effects of all of those things. His trouble is a cross, he's a victim of human injustice, and then rises from the dead, and it's so important, the apostle Paul says that Jesus rose from the dead, that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he writes about why you, you have, if, if, if Jesus is not raised, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, then your faith is a waste of time, your faith is futile, is his words, and he says, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. In other words, Jesus says, if Jesus is not raised from the dead, don't waste your time on religion. This all hinges on the resurrection of Jesus. In other words, that's another way to say the story is true. It actually happened in human history. Two of my favorite writers are C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. C.S. Lewis wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, among other things. J.R.R. Tolkien is famous for writing The Lord of the Rings. 
they were actually, you may not know this, but they were actually friends, and they read each other's work and, and would critique each other's work. And J.R.R. Tolkien was a Christian, and C.S. Lewis was a professor at Oxford University and an atheist and wanted nothing to do with God, but they were intellectual friends. J.R.R. Tolkien kept explaining to C.S. Lewis what the gospel meant and what Jesus' coming meant. And, and it, it finally, it dawned on C.S. Lewis, who read myth. He was a professor of medieval and Renaissance English. And he, he read, uh, he read the, the Gospels. And in fact, when he read it, it as a place recorded in one of his writings. He says, I, I know ancient myths. I've read them all of my life and taught them. This, the Gospels are not that. And it dawned on C.S. Lewis. He called it the true myth. He said, okay, a myth is a way of making meaning. I'm not I'm trying to derail you here. But he said, this is actually something that actually happened. And he, he became, in his own words, he said, I became the most reluctant convert in all of Christendom. Because he realized this happened. This is true. This is reality. Jesus rose from the dead. That changes absolutely everything in human history. So listen to what I'm saying to you. I'm not talking to you about you figuring out how you can be the hopeful person. I'm talking to you about the hopeful person. You and I, we're unsteady. We can hope one minute and doubt the next. We can come one Sunday full of faith and the next Sunday with none. We're, we're uncertain. The prophet Jeremiah, he wrote about it. He, he called your heart, uh, the word he uses, deceitful. It Really, the word there means it's tricky and uneven. If Jeremiah, the prophet, were around today and he heard the advice to follow your heart, he would go, why would you do that? Your heart is so tricky and uneven. Why in the world would you follow your heart? It's beyond care. Who can understand the heart? So, back to my question. If you don't have Jesus and you read the Psalms of lament, what, are you, what, do, you, what do you have? I mean, you've got some form of liturgy. Uh, you've got something that's maybe not completely meaningless. I just would argue that what it does is it keeps you on th this side of suffering. And we're trying to get to the other side of suffering. And it leaves you in a place where you don't have a future basis for your present action. In other words, you have no hope. Because the hopeful person is Jesus. That's, who the, that's what I'm talking about here. I'm not talking about you. I'm saying the hopeful person is Jesus. There's this metaphor, there's this reality in the scriptures where Jesus is referred to as the second Adam. The first Adam, Adam and Eve in the garden, and Jesus is referred to as the second Adam. So everything that the first Adam failed to do, Jesus, the second Adam, did. Where the first Adam got it wrong, Jesus, the second Adam, got it right. So it goes like this. Like in the garden, the first Adam did what he wanted and lost everything. In the garden, the second Adam sweat drops of blood and gave everything for you. In the, garden, the first, in the garden with Adam and Eve, the first Adam, he cursed mankind with his actions, and the second Adam delivered us from the curse. The first Adam, the result of work was toil and thistles. The second Adam, the result of his work was redemption and fruit in your life. Through the first Adam, sin entered the world. Through the second Adam, righteousness and holiness and justice entered the world. Do you, do you, see, the, do you see the pattern there? Do you see what happens there? Tim Keller has this brilliant face. One of my, if you know me, you know he's one of my 
heroes. I read everything he writes and listen to him. And he passed away not long ago of pancreatic cancer. But he had this, has this little bit that he does in, in Preacher World um, where he talked about Jesus is the true and better, the true. If you've, you can look it up, and it's really powerful. I'm not going to try to replicate it here. But here's what he's trying to say. Is it's a riff on this first Adam, second Adam. And he's trying to say that all of the people that you meet and read about in the scriptures are a type of the first Adam. In some ways, get it right. In some ways, do things that work. But in other ways, don't. So whenever you read anybody but Jesus in the scriptures, what you're reading is the record of one of the first Adams. And so it's always us. It's always you and me. But Jesus is the second Adam. And so he does this riff where he goes all the way, and I'm not going to go all the way through here, but he, where he takes all these characters in the scriptures and he says, you know, Jesus was the true and better Abraham. Instead of looking for a sacrifice, he was the sacrifice. And Jesus was the true and better Jacob, who rather than resisting God, resists sin and takes the blows on his body so you can walk in freedom. And Jesus is the true and better Rahab, and instead of tying a scarlet cloth as a sign asking for deliverance, shed his scarlet blood so humans could be delivered. And Jesus is the true and better Esther, instead of asking for help from the king, was the king who came to give his, give his help, leaving his palace to give his life. And Jesus was the true and better Job, the truly innocent sufferer who he intercedes for and saves his stupid friends. I mean, you go all the way through the scriptures. Jesus is the true and better. Now, let's apply this to you and me. That means Jesus is the true and better you and me who want to have hope. Jesus is the true and better you and me who want to be hopeful people because Jesus gives hope and is hope itself. First Adam, that's you and me. We're spotty, we're uneven, we're, our hearts deceive us. The second Adam is the hopeful person, Jesus. Here's, why am I saying this to you? It is exhausting to try and be the hopeful person. Like, oh, I just got to work this up. And I just, I'm trying to say to you that the pressure is off. And Because here's what the, hope, the hopeful person said. I want to give you the full context of what Jesus says in John 16. I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. In other words... It must not be the trouble that's the real trouble. It's what the trouble does in you that is the trouble. And here's what Jesus, the hopeful person, says. Stay with me. I have overcome what trouble does in you. And if you stay with me, I'll bring that with me. The hopeful person. Okay. Final and proximate hope. Final and proximate hope. What do you mean, Scott? Well, we need to know that in the end this all works and, and the record of the scriptures is that this is not it. This is not the, this is not the end. This is just the beginning. Uh, you could go all the way to the book of Revelation. I'll, I'll put it on the screen for you. I think we've, we've been having some technical issues, but this is how the, book, the Bible ends. Book of Revelation, chapter 21. Uh, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for, his, for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God and he will wipe every tear from their eyes and there'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. What, what's that pointing to? That's pointing to the restoration 
of this material world the way it was always intended to be. Now, maybe you go, wait, what, 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 Scott, what? Here's what this points to. It's a record. This is not new language in Revelation. Isaiah talks about it. Jesus references it. Peter talks about it. Use that same phrase, new heaven, new earth. That God loves his creation and doesn't give up on it. And, and in the end, God comes down to us. We don't go up some other place. And let me say it to you like this. I say it every time someone, I go through a funeral and I, I go to the graveside and, and I talk about what's going to happen to this person's body. And I say this little phrase, I say, what happened to Jesus' body on Easter Sunday morning is what happens to all of creation and to you. It's the new heavens and the new, in this sense, Christians are, are very materialistic. In other words, whatever God makes, God loves and God redeems. We don't float on clouds with harps. That's Aristotle's idea. That's not Jesus' idea. It's not a biblical idea. We create in the presence of the infinitely creative God forever. It's, you can't even put it into words. Again, Tim Keller, he said, what we want to know when we think about death is we want to know not is there life after death, is there love after death? <laughs> And the response of the scriptures and the response of the resurrection of Jesus is yes. You can have a final hope and, and that this isn't it. The early church fathers would talk about the world is like a training gym where you strengthen yourself. It's like a smelting room where you go in and you're, you're melted together into what you were always meant to be. And, and it fits you for what you will do in God's creative new heaven and new earth. Because it's final hope. And you go, okay, yeah, that sounds great, Scott, but I need hope right now. That's proximate hope, hope that's close. How do you take that final hope and turn it into something that walks with you through the day? How, how, do, you, how do you do that? How do we take then and make it something that's a reality now? How do I, I want to know how to do that. I need something close. I need proximate hope. I told you about J.R.R. Tolkien, and so I, I want to read you a quote from one of his sacred texts. I'm kidding when I say that. The Lord of the Rings. Again, J.R.R. Tolkien, Christian, and he wrote this wonderful book that I love so much, this wonderful set of stories. And he's, he's writing about life. And he has this thing, if you know the story, it's about two little hobbits, Frodo and Sam, and they're tasked with taking this terrible ring and returning it to the awful country, Mordor, where it was forged, and they're to cast it into the fires of Mount Doom and be rid of it forever. It's this terrible burden they bear and this terrible journey they have to go on. And they, if you read the stories, they come against setback after setback after setback after setback. Just suffering, difficulty, pain, anguish. And they're near the end of the journey and wondering if it will ever end and if they will ever be successful. Have you been there? And then, then this, one of my favorite phrases from all of the Lord of the Rings, I'm going to read it to you. There, peeping among the cloud cover above a high, dark peak up in the mountains, Sam, one of those little hobbits, saw a white star twinkle for a while. The beauty of it smote his heart as he looked up out of the forsaken land, and hope returned to him. For like a shaft, clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end the shadow was only a small and passing thing. 
there was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. I read that, and I, you know what I thought of? I thought of the 23rd Psalm. Even though I walk through the valley of what? The shadow of death. I will fear no evil. What's he talking about there? Proximate hope. Why? You are with me. You are with me. I want to invite you to stand with me. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing an old, old hymn that I love. Pray with me, okay? Lord, uh, you know what we're up against. You know what we're facing. You know the, the diagnoses that have been received. People we love and respect. You know the ones we've lost. And Lord, I know underneath all of that is all of the regular difficulty of life that we face. So Lord, today, would you take us from the place where we can only look at our suffering from what we had to where we can look at our suffering from the hope that you give? Thank you for the honesty of the scriptures. Thank you for the resource of lament. Thank you that you are bigger than our emotion. Thank you that you can handle what we feel. That you are never overwhelmed by how broken we are. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. We confess we're the first Adam. We put our hope in you, the second Adam. So, Lord, come in your power. Lord, we need healing. We need healing for Greg. We need healing for Ryan, for Lance. We ask for that. I know there's so many others who need healing. Lord, we, we ask, we, we want in, a, in this present moment to experience the breaking in of your kingdom in their bodies. Clean bill of health. That's what we want. And we ask for it. We, we want it as a sign of the kingdom that's to come. And at the same time, Lord, we recognize the final hope that we have. And that, your, that hope does not disappoint us because you have poured out your love into our hearts. Lord, we receive it again today. I would invite you while you're sitting there, maybe you hold out your hands. This is just a way of saying, Lord, I receive your love. Lord, pour it into us right now. In hospital rooms, on couches, at bedsides. Pour your love into us. Thank you for the promise that you are with us, that your rod and your staff, they comfort us. You prepare a table before us in the presence of our enemies. Our cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow us all the days of our life. And Lord, all of us put our hope, in our final hope, in the fact that we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We receive again this morning on January the 14th, 2024, your hope. Come Holy Spirit. Pray this in your name.